Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Oh, hello, and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thanks for checking out the show today. Before we get into our guest, the delightful Nina DeVitri, if you haven't yet, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter at basicfolk.com. We won't spam you just once a month. It just gives us an opportunity to stay in touch and let you know what's happening. We release weekly, so lots and lots of interviews to keep up with, and that's like the easiest way to stay in touch. You can also follow us on social media. We're posting right now on Instagram and Facebook at Basic Folk Pod. If you've been listening for a while, you might know that we're a listener-supported podcast. You can make a contribution and help it all happen at basicfolk.com. If you go to our shop right now, you can get a Basic Folk beanie for $5 a month. They are hand-knit by my mom with love, and she'll actually even like send you a little note. It says handmade with love, and it's true. I can attest. Um, you can get that at the shop at basicfolk.com. And, you know, it's the end of summer. The cooler weather is right around the corner. So there you go. Basic Folk Beanie. Again, the website, basicfolk.com. There's also a link in the show notes. Okay. Lancaster-born, Nashville-based Nina DeVitri's debut album, What You Feel Is Real, shines while showcasing her passion for jazz and folk music. DeVitri's name may sound familiar as she comes from a musical family and is the youngest sister of folk superstar Maya DeVitri, formerly of the Straybirds. She grew up fiddling around the campfire while being classically trained on the violin and her true love, the piano. She started writing songs very young, became enchanted with foreign languages, and found herself studying at Temple University. Partway through her freshman year, something felt wrong and she decided to take a gap year in order to operate outside of a system and find out what it was that she wanted to do. After attending the beloved Miles of Music Camp in New Hampshire, Nina was inspired to fully lean into her musicality. She recorded an EP in 2017 and started dabbling in music as a profession. During the pandemic, she was in the creating process of What You Feel Is Real, and at the time, Nina experienced a return to self in several ways, including reconnecting with the piano. A theme of the record is making the choice to believe yourself. She says, what we feel is real, what we love is real, and I think the more we all trust these inner voices, the closer we will get to both knowing ourselves and knowing a more loving and peaceful society. Her new record is a fabulously strong debut that feels like a classic songwriter album playing with different styles of jazz. It is a pure delight to talk to Nina. I hope you listen to her new album after you check out our conversation. We're going to listen to a clip from one of her songs. This is History, and then we'll get to our conversation with Nina DeVitri on Basic Folk. History It's ours to write now Nina DeVitri, what's up? It's going great. It's great to see you. How are you? Oh, I'm good. I'm so excited to talk to you. I love talking to you. Um, let's get into your life. 
Let's do it. You ready? I'm ready. Okay. Some of these questions are kind of long to set up, but bear with me. Okay. You grew up in Lancaster, PA, to a family of musicians and artists. Your musical journey starts when you were three or four. Three or four-year-old Nina is watching your dad, Pierre de Vitry, play violin. Um, He plays or played in a Django jazz band, amongst other forms. And you declared, I remember you told this to me at a party one time, and I heard you say it on a podcast, and I just love it so much. You said you wanted to play violin so you could fiddle around the campfire with daddy. That's exactly right. I love that (laughs) I said that too, you know? I don't remember saying it, but... (laughs) What do you recall of that feeling of watching your dad play, and how has his connection to music impacted your musicality? Hmm. I love that question. Um, I just remember always being very enchanted by my dad. And he has this like infectious passion for music that I feel very lucky to have grown up around. So I, I remember going to his gigs, especially the gypsy jazz ones. He's also in like a progressive bluegrass band that started when I was pretty young as well. But I really remember the jazz gigs and running up front and like dancing and um, calling out specific requests. There's this one song <laughs> called Eight, Nine, Ten, and I would like run up to the front and just like hold up my fingers to try to get the band to play. So yeah, I have very fond memories of watching my dad. So how do you think his love for music has impacted you as a musician? Mm. I think it's impacted it very much. And actually recently, um, I have a new perspective on that because my sister Monica had a baby. His name is Luca. He's almost three. Um, And watching the way that my dad plays with a little baby has really informed me in terms of like, oh, wow, this must be how I was raised. (laughs) Like, he'll put the guitar on his lap, like, facing up, and he'll hold Luca and just play guitar with him and, like, show him the strings. And he'll just, he'll do that all the time. He'll also, like, well, he did this when he was a little bit smaller. Now he's almost three. But when he was a baby, he'd, like, hold him under one arm and shoot pool while <laughs> holding <him. laughs> And seeing this all go down now, I'm like, oh, no wonder I love music and I love shooting pool. Like, that must be what he did with me. <laughs> uh, I have heard you describe yourself as outgoing scrappy and frugal you're a very good packer like you don't need the carry-on this might be a silly question but let's talk about it where do you see those traits of your personality coming from and then how do you see them coming out in your songs oh i don't know if budgeting can come out through a song or not but okay so i feel like there's two parts of this there's like the outgoing part and then the like scrappy frugal part um The outgoing part, I think, definitely comes from my big family and being the youngest kid and just, like, being thrown into everything all the time and just having to fend for myself. And and in terms of how that shows up in my music, I will say I've thought a bit about, like, my, like, you know, what is my main goal with my music and a big part of it is connecting with people and helping people connect with themselves and I think that's sort of like outgoingness and self-exploration comes through in my songs a lot Mm. um like I, I feel like my role as a musician is sometimes as much of like a community builder and someone who brings people together as it is like someone who plays songs and tells stories So that speaks to the outgoing part. I don't know how my uh, 
scrappiness would show up in my music, except I will say that um, I didn't let myself like cut corners when I made this album. I wanted to really like put everything I could into it. And I did like save a lot of money and raise a lot of money on Kickstarter and stuff. So, um, you know, there's certain areas of my life where I, I do put a lot more like assets, but I think the scrappiness is like, you know, where can I cut corners so that I can save money to spend it on the things that I care about? So like when I'm traveling, um, I just went to this festival called Rocky Grass in Colorado and I flew on Frontier and I didn't pay for like a seat or a carry-on or anything and I knew that I was going to be able to rely on my community there and like borrow instruments from people. So I didn't even bring like my fiddle because it would have been like something crazy, like $75 or something to bring it along. Mm. Um, so, you know, I try to be smart about where I spend my money. Yeah. So going back to your family, um, is your mom a musician? She is. She um, she sings and plays guitar. She's, um, I would say, a more passionate visual artist than musician. Okay. Shout out to your mom. Yeah. Intense, fun lady. <laughs> uh, so most of the musicians in your family are jammers. Like, you call your dad the ultimate jammer because he just <laughs> never stops. Um Quick story, your sister Maya somehow convinced me, a terrible clarinet player, to jam with her one time. And she was so kind and I was like so embarrassed. But not, I mean, not at the, like thinking back, I'm like, wow, how embarrassing. But at the time, she was very kind. So two parts to this question. For those who don't know, what is jamming? And part two, how do you think your family influences each other's jam styles? Mm. Wow, great questions. Um, okay, so jamming is, in my point of view, playing music with other people in a spontaneous way. So it's not like you're rehearsing for a show, but you're just sitting down with some folks who play or sing and you know you pass some songs around and usually well sometimes you haven't heard the songs before sometimes you have if it's like in the old time or bluegrass tradition and there's all these songs people know and call commonly but sometimes um you know if you're playing with like my dad he might just pull out an old song from like the 60s that you've never heard that's like some rock band and somebody (laughs) leads it and everybody else adds what they can and it's like a beautifully inventive and like connective time cool okay let's talk about family comparison and living up to the family reputation Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in this. So your oldest sister, Maya DeVitri, is a professional musician and probably the most famous of all your family members, like folk famous. For sure, yeah. <laughs> her work with the Stray Birds and her solo records have brought her like very well-deserved acclaim. With your debut album, I love it. I I think it's so good. But when I introduce it to people, I say... This is Maya DeVitri's sister. How do you feel about that? And how has that expectation played out over your life? Mm, yeah, this is a good question. And I've thought about this some. Um, so first I'll just say I'm so inspired by Maya. And I wonder if my life would be different if she wasn't my older sister, you know? I think seeing her go off and tour and write songs and stuff always really um, impacted me. And we always have had similarities in what we like to do. You know, we've always both loved to write not just songs, but prose. We're both, I would say, maybe the more outgoing of the four siblings and 
both love to travel. So um, I've always looked up to her a lot. And as I've started writing my own music and putting it out there, I've actually been kind of relieved to realize that what I write just is kind of, it's really hard to compare to what she does. Like we're kind of in two different worlds in a way. Like we both like hang out in the folk and roots scene. But since she's gone on to do her more, her solo project since the Stray Birds, like her stuff has gone in a more of a almost alternative like rock, like country direction. And my stuff has always been a little bit more on the jazzy side. So um, I don't mind at all. And, you know, when people are like, this is Maya's sister, I'm like proud to be her sister. And I, you know, feel lucky that that can be an introduction. I think sometimes that has like softened introductions for me to be able to play at a certain venue or, or whatever. But in some ways it also can be difficult because someone has a certain idea of like, this is what Maya sounds like. Oh, this is her sister. And then, you know, I've had experiences where people listen and are like, oh, wow, this is just not, this is not like the stray birds. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like, oh, no, no, nobody ever said that it was. But, um, (laughs) you know, I, I think that in a way, like, I wonder sometimes if that has, um, expedited like the closing of certain doors because people have like this idea that it's going to be a certain Americana folky thing and then they're like whoa this sounds really different where you know this isn't Maya 2.0 so like we're not interested (laughs) which I don't I don't really think that happens very often but I mean I've had some some fans of hers like come to shows of mine and then been like oh you know like I really think you should Play some more stuff in the roots direction. Like, where's the fiddle, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, well, that's just not what I do. But you can definitely go see my sister (laughs) if you want that. (laughs) (laughs) You started as an instrumentalist and were trained classically on the violin when you were five and then started piano at seven. Some years later, you picked up the guitar And you've spent a large part of your musical education studying instruments and instrumentation. So how has that informed you as a vocalist? Mm, I like that. I've also thought about that some recently. Um, So I'm going to say something that any vocalists listening are going to be like, oh, my God, I can't believe she said that. But then I'm going to back it up a little bit. Um, (laughs) I used to really think about instruments like on a pedestal and I loved to sing when I was like a little tiny kid but um I didn't love to sing when I was like in middle school choir like I did it one year and then I like quit the next year and then my brother like convinced me I had to do it in high school um so there was this part of me when I was younger that like I don't think fully understood or respected like that the voice is an instrument, (laughs) if that makes sense. Like, because I, my perspective was so much like, okay, I'm learning this thing that's not a part of my body. I'm playing the piano, I'm playing the violin. And there's all these like technical elements to that. Um, And then when I would go to a music camp and there would be classes, I was always like, oh, I don't need to do the singing one because like, I know how to carry a tune. I want to go learn like this new way to like approach the fiddle or the piano um and then in the last couple of years like it dawned on me that I had like so much improvement to do (laughs) with my voice and I have always had like a bit of a softer voice and I think that's what brought me towards the jazz genre too but for the longest time, I sort of accepted that like, oh, this is just my voice and like it gets tired easily and I can only sing like these certain types of things. And then during the pandemic, I started to take some voice classes and I started to understand just how difficult and nuanced the human voice is and how 
you know, how silly it was that I wasn't seeing it for the full instrument that it was. Um, So I think my experience as an instrumentalist, like now that I'm seeing voice as an instrument, definitely has like impacted the way that I practice and like the way that I perceive the voice in, in a great way. And I think has impacted my understanding of like phrasing and scales and all these things. But it's only in recent years that I've been like, okay, wait, <laughs> I want to be, <laughs> I want to be a good vocalist. How, <laughs> how do you improve? Right. You know? Oh, cool. Uh, it's my understanding in elementary school, you were inspired to write songs and start writing songs after a musician visited. What do you recall of that moment? Like, how do you relate to it now? Oh, yeah. Well, actually, I remember it like decently well. There was just this guy who came. I don't know who he was, but he came to this room at our elementary school and we all watched him. And like, I don't really remember the song that we did as a class, but I remember I went home and had this like tiny little like Casio piano. It was like two or three octaves, made some fun noises and stuff. And I started to write this song. I actually remember some of the words. It was like, it wasn't like a real story, but I wrote the song about like my friend Jonathan and I never had the chance to say goodbye. Whoa. And Nina, this sounds like past life shit. Honestly, yeah, I I won't say I don't believe in that, you know, and uh, that could have been a past life thing. It was like this whole story. I think I recorded it on like a little tape player. It'd be great if I could find that. Get the um, tape. But honestly, Pierre, get the tape. <laughs> I think that like that was my first memory of like writing like a full song with like chords and lyrics. But I had definitely been like messing around on the piano for a long time kind of like discovering some like chord progressions and like realizing like, oh my gosh, if I go, and this is going to be like a little bit, maybe too much theory, but like the Pachelbel's canon chord progression or, or like forever young, like these very classic pop progressions that all sound similar. I started to like figure out that I could like do those. And I remember just like sitting and listening to how the chords fell and sounded like one after another and being like really taken by that. So I think that must have been before I wrote the actual song because I remember sitting down and being able to like put something together in that afternoon after school. So wow. Yeah, I think I had been working at it. (laughs) (laughs) I found this great quote from you about how in order to make great music, you have to listen to great music. You said, to be able to talk, you should listen. To be able to write, you should read. Historically, what kind of listener are you and how did you learn to listen? It's mm, a good question. So more recently, I've noticed that I love live listening so much. Like there's this, there's like an energetic part of it that's so different than like listening to a record. So I've really enjoyed like immersing myself with all the live music in Nashville and going out to see friends performing. Um, So right now I would, I would associate myself more as like a live listener is my favorite type of listening. Um, But more historically, I feel like I can't do many things at once. Like I'm I wouldn't say I'm, I don't think I'm ADD, (laughs) but um, I can't like be working and listening to music at the same time. Mm. So if I'm listening, it's like, it's got to be a really gentle task, like chopping vegetables and listening to music um, or just like laying on the floor and listening to music. Um, So I would say, I guess the thing in common with like that and me being like a live music listener these days is that I think there's a certain like attentiveness to those types of listening that like, or even like being in the car. I really like to listen to music a lot in the car as well. And like, that's enough of a like subconscious task. I mean, hopefully you're 
pretty attentive when you're driving, but you know, it's, it's easy to listen to music in my opinion when I'm driving versus like working. But yeah, I think the common thread there is like my brain like needs a lot of space to be able to listen to something. And if I can't, I'd rather just have silence. Like if I'm distracted and I, my attention is somewhere else, I'm like, I can't do this, you know, or if I'm at a live show, like, I mean, I love to chat, you know, I'm a communicator, but (laughs) if I really want to hear the music, I'll like go up front and I'll like sit there and, you know, try to make it known as like, I'm, I'm listening right now, you know. You went to Temple University to study Spanish and literature and you decided to take a year off after being there for a while. You took a gap year. In getting ready for your gap year, how did you approach that year? What did you end up doing? And then what were the results? Mm. Okay. Were you at Miles of Music in 2016? Do you remember? I went in 2018. Okay. Okay. So basically I had like my freshman year of college and I was really like struggling to feel happy and like I was in the right place. And I went to Miles of Music right after my freshman year and was like, whoa, I really want to, I want to like do more music stuff. Can you explain a little bit what Miles of Music is and why it made you feel like that? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. But I'll back up really quick first and just say like around like March of my freshman year, I just hit this point where I was like, I can't stay in school right now. Like for some reason, I just like felt this. And I was in this really cool Spanish immersion program at Temple at the time, and I liked it a lot, but I was like, I can't imagine what I would do next after this. So I decided that was going to be it, and then I was going to take a gap year. So I went to Miles of Music, which is this very magical songwriting camp in New Hampshire on an island in the middle of Lake Winnipesaukee that um, Laura Cortese and Kristen Andreessen started and run. And you go for a week and you get to go to all these very exciting classes, um, songwriting, some instrumental classes if you want. And it's like, it felt like a utopia to me. I was like, I can just be in nature, like living in this little cabin for a week and I can sit on a rock and write a song and like go canoeing. And yeah, it was everything I think I had been like missing (laughs) my whole life maybe no yeah but especially that first year in college like it was nothing like that but after that experience um and sharing a few of my songs there um I hadn't really like shared many of my songs up to that point but I got some good feedback and was feeling like more confident about writing after that so um I had already planned I really wanted to start learning French that year because I uh, have French heritage, but only had studied Spanish formally. So I ended up going to Canada because it was more like accessible than going to France. But I went to um, the Gaspisi Peninsula and I found this hostel on Workaway where I could work a little bit every day for my you know, room and board. And my main goal was to just like, see what I did with myself when I wasn't in a system because I, I was always like a really serious student in high school. And then like, I just felt so lost in college because I was supposed to be the one like, like taking the reins and knowing what I wanted to do. And I just didn't know. So um, it was a really great experience to be working at this hostel meeting a bunch of people who were French speakers who were coming from France to travel in that area. And then also there was the uh, French-Canadian vibe there. And I had like saved up money to be there for like a month or so and then went to Montreal and did the same thing in Montreal. And I was pretty regimented with myself. Like during that time, I I was like actually like studying French, you know, I got myself some books and then I was trying to like talk to people as much as I could in French. Um, But then I I had a lot 
of other free time where I wasn't like studying French or working at the hostels. And I ended up mostly writing songs in my free time. And that was very impactful to see that like, oh, this is how I'm spending my free time. This is like, I haven't never had this amount of free time to do this with, you know? Um, So yeah, after that trip, I went home and decided I should record my songs that I wrote. And that resulted in my first EP, which was like, oh my gosh, it was like six years ago now. So you recorded your EP in 2017. Mm -hmm. And now we have your debut album, What You Feel Is Real. And in the creating process of this debut album, it sounds like during that time, there was a return to self for you in several ways. And this return was happening during the pandemic. So a very good time to check it out for yourself. (laughs) Um, One of those ways was reconnecting to the piano. And I'm wondering, like, how does that reconnection with the piano make its way onto the record? Mm. Yeah, I love talking about the piano. Um, Okay, (laughs) so the reconnection with the piano has been like a couple years in the making. And I it started happening like while I was in that recording process, but I wasn't necessarily like conscious of how important it was to me at the time of recording. But about like six months after I went into the studio and laid down like the the main tracks with the band, I had this just like a couple big shifts in my life and myself and this like catharsis where I just like sat down and I wrote the song on piano that was like basically it's called it brings me to tears and the song is about like realizing that you got so far from something that you cared about so much and like looking at how that happened and one of the verses of that song like harkens back to my recording experience on the What You Feel Is Real album from that previous summer, um, there was this one song, just one, that I had written on piano and really felt compelled to play piano on that one. I had some other great piano players on the record as well, but I thought, you know, on this one, I want to play and they can play like on top of me. We can all play because it's important for me to play. And funny enough, that actually was like a little bit of a difficult moment in the production because there was like a little bit of pushback from someone at the time who was like, why don't you just have like so-and-so like play, like teach them the part? And I was like, I don't know why, but it's really important to me to play this part. And then I like kept getting pushback and I was like, I ended up like crying <laughs> Hmm. This was like the day before we went into the studio. Um, And then I had this little meltdown and I was like, I shouldn't have to like explain like 10 times why this is so important to me if it's simply just really important to me and I feel that. Um, And there were so many other areas on the record where like I was like, oh, I wrote this on guitar, but like I'm not going to play it because it'll sound way better if like so-and-so does it. So there were a lot of moments where I was just like giving up playing instruments or doing certain parts because I just knew it would be better for it if somebody else did it. But this didn't feel that way. This was like something invisible was like, you have to play your part on this one. And it's actually what you feel is real is that song, um, which makes that story, I feel like, cut a little bit deeper Um, so yeah, months later when I was like, whoa, I'm in love with the piano. And then I, my mind sort of went through this, like, this remembrance of like, all of these times that I felt like dissuaded or like pulled away from that instrument, either by myself or by other people, like in that situation, like that was all going through my head. And I was just like, oh my God, this this instrument is really important to me. And it was pretty cool that I had that whole reckoning with it like after the fact, 
you know? Mm. And then I did end up playing on that song. And that feels like a really, I don't know, just like pivotal moment for me as a musician and a producer and like standing up for my art and like how I want to make it, you know? Oh. Is the piano in love with you? Depends on the piano. (laughs) (laughs) One of the themes of the record sounds like believing in yourself. And you say, what we feel is real. That's the name of the record. What we love is real. And I think the more we all trust these inner voices, the closer we will get to both knowing ourselves and knowing a more loving and peaceful society. What has your experience with learning to trust and believe yourself and your feelings, what has that experience been like for you? Hmm. It has been a long journey and it has been cyclical in some ways. Like for example, when I made my EP, I was going through a lot of personal shifts and discovering who I wanted to be in the world and what I wanted to do. And I felt like I was really flexing that muscle of like trusting myself and leaning into that. And then then I had like several years of like, you know, okay, I'm living my life. I moved to a new city and um, sort of just like autopilot living. And then I feel like in everyone's life, like these decisions or these moments come up where like you have to look within and be like, what am I going to do? How am I going to deal with this? And a lot of those have come up again in the last year or so making this record and like in personal and professional relationships. And I say cyclical because I feel like, like I came back around to this point of like, oh yeah, this muscle, this is what it feels like to trust myself. This is what it feels like to stick up for myself. Mm. This is what it feels like to like believe in what I feel. And um, so that's been, it's been a long journey and I expect that journey will continue forever and I'll just only just continue to practice getting better at listening to my intuition. Mm. But I feel like I have been, like refining my ability to pay attention to that in the last couple years. And it feels so good. Even some like medical situations where that was relevant, where like I felt a thing and then a doctor was like, no, I think you're probably fine, you know? And then I had to seek someone out who like listened to that and then could like run a test and be like, oh yeah, you're right. This imbalance is the reason that like you're feeling this way um and it's pretty darn validating in a situation like that where you can like see some data and be like oh my gosh what i felt in my body was real um and you know you always hear these stories of like women and marginalized people are just not listened to as much in like medical settings for example did you listen to uh the new serial podcast, The Retrievals? No. Oh, boy. Oh, oh, but I heard about that. Yes. The, the, yeah. Oh, yes, The Egg Retrievals. Yes. I actually, I read like a, I skimmed a little article about that because somebody mentioned it at Clifftop. So if you listen to it, you'll do a lot of screaming. Ah, that's a, like the perfect example, though, <laughs> of like women's yeah. pain being completely ignored. Right, right. Okay, Uh about a couple of these songs. Man, this is such a good record. I'm so happy for you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. The song History was written after the 2016 election. And you said it was fueled by the divided political moment and my own feelings of fear and hopelessness. Can you dig into my favorite line in the song? It comes right after, like, you open the song and you kind of go through the colors of the American flag and what red, white, and blue I feel like meant to you at the time. And then after you go through the colors, you finish up with red. And red means two different things. You'll have to remind me what they are. Yeah, I'll have to remind myself. (laughs) Red for emergency, I think, was 
the second one. Red for a sign, for a warning. Yeah, for emergency. Mm -hmm. So my favorite line in that song, and I wanted to know if you could explain a little bit more, please generate compassion from your grief. Mm. Yeah, well, I felt like at the time, me and the majority of my community, we were all just like despondent. And that was part of what scared me was like, I think the the outcome we were hoping for from the election still wasn't what we all like necessarily like thought was the best thing for the country anyway. But the outcome that we got that we didn't want like people had been fighting so hard and on working on their campaigns and you get to this point of just like straight up like adrenal fatigue, really um, like fatigue and despondency and just sadness and grief. And I, I wouldn't say I actually don't personally have like a lot of experience with like deep personal grief and loss but I felt this like widespread grief and this like energy hanging in the air even though I was actually in Canada at the time um but Mm -hmm. all these people who like knew that I was American were coming up to me and just being like I'm so sorry for your loss like as if like someone had died um Mm. and I am a true believer in like the dark things in our lives can lead and create space for lighter things if we are willing to like do that work to work through it and and figure out how to get there. So um, for me, you know, I think another thing at the time was I was doing like a lot of yoga and there's this principle called Pradipaksha Bhavana, where you like call in the opposite of the feeling that you're feeling. And I guess compassion isn't necessarily the the opposite of grief, but I think it's something that we have control over that's akin to the opposite of grief. Because it's like, you can't like, all right, generate like happiness from your grief. You know, it's like, we don't really have control over that. Um But I think compassion is something that we all can access if we work hard enough, even in like a grieving state. Mm -hmm. And it's something that will help good things to bloom, you know? Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. (laughs) Another song um, I wanted to ask you about, Being With Myself. Mm. It's all about getting back to the self. And you said I wrote it at a time when I felt very distanced from myself. And that you hope the song can remind people to slow down, prioritize things that make them feel whole. It's so easy to feel detached from yourself in a fast-paced and distracting world. Feel that. (laughs) Let's talk about you and distractions. (laughs) How do you deal? How good are you at recognizing that it's time to get back to what feels grounding? Depending on the day... (laughs) I sometimes have success and sometimes not. But honestly, I think one of my better skills in life is my ability to like check in with myself and know what I need. And I think I honed that a lot during the pandemic, particularly. Um, I actually had this conversation with someone recently. Um, I think boundaries have a lot to do with that. And I'm getting a lot better at communicating my boundaries to people, um, especially and even with just like good friends or like people I'm around a lot. Um, My good friends know like, okay, Nina's really outgoing and energetic, but she like needs her space, you know? Mm. And like, if I don't hear from her for like a weekend or two, it's not because she doesn't love me or because like she's not doing okay. It's probably because she's like spending some time with herself. Um, So I've been working to like 
just communicate that part of myself more to people and be more honest with people about like my energetic limits. So that's been getting better and better. And I don't know, like social media and all those distractions, they're so hard to deal with. I I started doing the thing on my phone where it like, you have like a limit and then it pops up and it's like, your 15 minutes are over. And then you're like, override (laughs) like goodbye sometimes you just need more time like these days I find I'm on there more than I want to be because I'm like posting about things but I've been trying to like post and get off you know um or if I'm on there like looking at something hopefully it's like a really cool like music video that someone put out or you know so um I think just like having boundaries in place to like take space has been my greatest tool recently. I forget if that answers your question, but. (laughs) Yeah, no, boundaries, like having boundaries is such a virtue. So important. Yeah. Okay, one more question and then we're going to do something so fun. Ooh. Um. This is the first question I wrote for this interview. I've been looking forward to asking you this question all day. So you are compared to Nora Jones quite a bit. Mm. But I also heard you talking about Amy Winehouse being an influence. And it makes a lot of sense sonically. And I've also noticed that her aesthetic really seems to have impacted you with your promo pictures. Like I can look at them and be like, Amy, I can see Amy Winehouse. Um, You were 14 years old when Amy died. I miss her so much. I'm going to get like emotional. Mm, Uh, And also I just watched the Sinead O'Connor documentary. So like I really have like misunderstood ladies on the brain. (sighs) Um, (laughs) So you were 14 when Amy Winehouse tragically died, which is such a tender and formative age. And I would love to hear how her story, legacy, and death have impacted you and impacted the way you carry yourself in your music. That's such a cool question. Thank you for asking that. Um, So I'll just start by saying I didn't discover her that soon before her death. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, So I remember like my parents had this big iTunes library and I could just go on and listen to what I wanted really as a kid. Um, And when I was in middle school, I just have this memory of being in our kitchen cooking or something. And like, maybe she just came on the iTunes or whatever. And I was like, whoa, who is this? And it just like really hit me. And um I don't have memories like that with like that many musicians, but she was just someone that I like just stopped in my tracks. And that might have just been like a year or something before she died. Mm -hmm. So I remember hearing her and being like, who is this? And just getting excited to dig into her music a little bit more. And I would say one of the like earlier impacts I can remember of her music having on me was that I, like a lot of the music we listened to growing up was like not necessarily stuff that I could hear myself in or not necessarily stuff that I like felt like I would sing well. You know, like Gillian Welsh and like these really like folk icons. Um, But when I heard Amy, I was like, okay, like this is some jazzy, like just like, deep like rhythmic groovy stuff and the instrumentation really impacted me too I was like so taken by the horn section and like the backing vocals and all that stuff and that definitely informed me when I like went to Miles of Music and did band in a box that thing where you bring a song to the instructors and they will bring it to life for you I had this little song that I just like wrote on acoustic guitar and um pretty sure I gave them Amy as a reference. And I was like, it would be cool. Like, I, like she's someone I really like if we could do something like this. And so like, you know, they put like horn players on it and stuff. And in a way, 
that was like one of the first, I don't know, sort of like blueprints for my music where I was like, okay, like the songs that I write could sound like pretty cool with an instrumentation like hers. And I didn't see that very much because like I grew up in this very acoustic world. Mm-hmm. No one in our family plays like horns or drums or anything like that. Well, Maya is learning drums now, but <laughs> um, <laughs> so I just felt, yeah, just quite taken by her sound. And I have dressed up as her for Halloween before. Um, definitely her fashion is like very exciting I wouldn't consider myself to be like a super fashionable person. Um, And it's funny that you say like, oh, I I look at that and I like see Amy because I don't think that was even a conscious decision to like Mm. try to look like her. But I'm like, wow, that was definitely subconscious (laughs) now that you say it. Um, Actually, what happened with the like album promo uh, photos was I like – I don't like shopping very much. And I went to the mall with my friend Elise. And I was like, I have these pictures coming up. I got to like get something to wear. Does Elise like shopping? Um, Set the scene. Elise is there's more of a like thrifter, I think. But she was like, oh, yeah, I actually like weirdly have to go to the mall, too. So like neither of us like go to the <laughs> mall, really. But we both had to. And... <laughs> Actually, this is probably going too deep, but what's really funny is we were at our friends get together in Nashville and we do clothing swaps. And that's like, that's as much as I can go shopping. I can just bring a pile of clothes and look through my friend's old stuff and and put it on. But we were at a clothing swap and I was like, hey, Elise, I'm kind of embarrassed to say I actually like need to go to the mall. Do you want to come with me? And she was like, I need to go to the mall too. So anyway, (laughs) we're at the mall And I, like, had this sort of grand vision of, like, what I should wear. Not, like, anything particular, but I was like, it's going to be cool. It's going to be, like, fashionable. It'll be great. And then I, like, couldn't really find anything that spoke to me. And I was like, Mm. this is weird. I guess I just don't – I don't particularly, like, associate, like, with – I don't know, I'm not quite as visual of a person or something. So I did find this one really cool shirt, which is what I wore in my cover photo. And it wasn't like the look of the shirt, but it was like the fabric that I thought was really cool. It was like this sort of, it looks like water. It's like silvery and like just sort of flows under the light. And I was like, this is cool. And it was just like this huge, like oversized button down. And I came home and I was like, yeah, I guess I just like like oversized clothing. I don't know. So I just wore that with some black pants that I had. But the one thing that I got really excited about that I found at the mall was these white platform Puma sneakers. And I like was looking for white sneakers and I went in and I found them and I was like in this like sports store and I was like these are kind of crazy. Like, is this me? I don't know. So I just like walked out and then I kept walking down the hall and then something like made me turn around and I like went back to the store and I was like, I got to get these. Um, and I feel like these photos sort of mark like an acceptance or like an authenticity of like what I actually like to look like. Like, I feel like there was there's so many years being in the folk world where I'd wear like these long floral dresses like and try to fit like the fiddle player vibe and then I was like wait this is just not like this isn't me and it also like doesn't fit my music and then when I realized that I just like to wear sneakers and like oversized shirts it all made sense (laughs) (laughs) and I think that the hair um yeah subconsciously probably was inspired by Amy I since have chopped off my hair, was kind of growing it out for the release tour so that I could like approximate what that looked like. But I just scheduled myself another haircut because I was like, "Eh, I like having a bob. (laughs) Everyone loves a a chop. Yeah. When I say everyone, I mean heads of hair. (laughs) They love a chop. Um, So you're from Lancaster 
And I learned something very funny about the way that people from your part of Pennsylvania say a particular word. So I was wondering if you could say it before we start the lightning round. Okay. All right. So the word starts with S, and it's another word for road. A street? Oh, my gosh. You say it right. How do people say it? Street. Street with an S-H? Yeah. Oh, that's funny. Does Maya say street? I don't know. I have to check with her. My wife says street. Wait, where is she from? She is from near Pottsville. Pottsville, okay. By Hershey. Yeah, is maybe that's like a little bit of the like Pennsylvania Dutch influence or something. Maybe. Dietrich Strauss was the one that pointed it out to me. Does he say that? Yes. Okay. Street. Yeah, well, he's from that area. <laughs> For sure. That's so funny. Yeah. I do say hammock. <laughs> but that's more of a like, I feel like that's more of a Devitriism because I don't know anyone else hammock. who says that. And my friends give me a hard time. <laughs> wow. And then I just, I'm like, it's how it's spelled. Right. You know? Sure. Padlock, hammock. <laughs> I'm not going to be converted into saying hammock, <laughs> except the next time I need to say it, it's going to, I'm going to pause a little bit. Um, okay. Let's do the lightning round. Okay. I'm a little nervous. Nina DeVitri, you are from Lancaster, which is Amish country. What is your favorite Amish thing? Ooh, whoopie pies. Ooh, really good. What was your favorite high school sport? Okay, I played lacrosse, but soccer has always been my favorite sport, and I since started a Nashville musician soccer team in Nashville. Oh, how fun. First album you bought with your own money? <laughs> um, a Disney compilation album when I was six. <laughs> <laughs> Cute. Okay, this is tough. Randy Newman or Carol King? Oh, Wow. Why do this? <laughs> um, recently. Why do anything? Carol King. I've been really into her recently. Awesome. Where is the weirdest place you have jammed? Mm. Is this called lightning because I'm supposed to answer really fast? It's called lightning because it's ridiculous. Okay. <laughs> um, there's this bus that somebody brings to Clifftop and... He has outfitted it to be his living situation, and there's like an upright piano on there, and it's called the Jazz Bus. I don't know if that would be a weird place to jam, but it's cool and unique. Can I ask you one question, Nina? Is this bus in motion when you're jamming on it? Never has been. No. Incorrect. Uh, Nina DeVitri, you were part of the 2018 bus jam oh. on the way out of Miles of Music. You started it. Actually, I made you start it. How can I have I was like, not said that? You you primed me for this. You sent me that video this morning. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I really wanted to have a bus jam, and I was like, Nina, take out your fiddle. Wow. And you know what's weird? That I brought up a bus jam anyway, and it wasn't that one. Yeah, that's so funny. You've done multiple jams in multiple buses. That's funny. But yeah, that one was pretty great, and I'm really glad you caught it on video. It was awesome. What is your favorite secret spot in Nashville? Hmm. Well, it wouldn't be a secret if I told you, would it? Uh, um, come on, you can tell me. I won't tell anyone. I really like, this isn't secret at all, but Radnor Lake is a nice respite. Good place to walk. Nice. Okay, this is the last question. Where is the most beautiful place in the world that you have been to? Mm, easy. Le Calanque in the south of France. The National Park. Just aquamarine waters and big hot rocks that you can lay on after you swim. And croissants. And croissants. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Nina DeVitri, thank you for talking to me today. Congratulations on your new record, What You Feel Is Real. It's always so nice to see you. I can't wait to see you in real life. Thanks so much for having me. It is always very fun to talk with you.
This episode of Basic Folk was produced by Sarah Wardrop. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk. You can check out our website, basicfolk.com, or you can get us wherever you find podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, you can share it with a friend. Maybe that group of friends that you went camping with one time in the middle of Pennsylvania and you thought maybe that you experienced an alien sighting, but you're not really sure because you maybe were like were asleep when everyone else was experiencing it. Maybe send it to them. I think they would really like it. Okay, thanks for listening all the way to the end. We'll talk to you next time. Mm, bye. Bye.